I want to thank uh, the praise team, as always. You guys do a great job. Um, thank you very much for being used of God in that way. So I thought I'd start this way tonight. Um, you ever have, have you ever had an, a divine encounter? Um, have you ever just walked right into God? Now, if you're a student of the Bible, <laughs> you realize this happens all the time. Right? Uh, you have Abraham, an idol worshiper, minding his own business in Ur about 4,000 years ago, and God shows up. And God invites him, He invites Abraham to go with him. And Abraham believes, and Abraham packs it all up, and Abraham follows God. It happened to Moses. Moses was pastoring his father-in-law's flock. God shows up and calls him to do an impossible thing. But Moses believes. And Moses does a great work. Or God does a great work through Moses. It happened to David. One day David as a boy woke up and he was just minding the flocks, his father's flocks, and he went to bed that night anointed the future king of Israel. It happened to Peter. Peter had had a bad day at work. He had caught no fish, right? No fish. And this carpenter from Nazareth shows up and says, well, cast one more time. And Peter was skeptical, but he did cast one more time. And as you remember, the boat almost sank for the size of the catch. It happened to Matthew. Matthew was sitting at his counting table getting rich. And this carpenter from Nazareth showed up and he simply said, follow me. And Matthew did. It happened to Paul. You, how, how could you ever forget the Apostle Paul on his way to Damascus on important religious business you know, to arrest and persecute uh, some Christians. And Jesus revealed Himself to Paul on that road. And Paul would never be the same. Truly a divine encounter. And so, if you're a Christian tonight, you know what I'm talking about. It happened to you. One day, you ran into God. It happened to me. I've told you my story a number of times. Just briefly, I was 28 years old. I'd been in the church all my life. I'd been baptized when I was 8. Didn't mean anything to me. I just did it because it made my parents happy. So I did it. But I, I'm sitting there minding my own religious business. I went to church because it made my mother happy and she would cook a meal for me if I came to church. So this is the only reason I was at church. And somebody read from the Gospel of Matthew, I don't remember the exact text, and bam, I heard God. And, and for the first time in my life, He was real. You know, he was real. And I had that divine encounter. Tonight, we're going to see a thirsty woman walk right into God. And I love this story. It's one of my favorite in the Gospels. 
And I thought I would share this text with you. You know this, Psalm 42.1. David writes, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Those of you who know your Bibles, you know there is a powerful metaphor and analogy running through the Scripture uh, comparing really physical thirst to spiritual thirst. I did some reading on physical thirst. Some of you guys know this stuff. I mean, you can last quite a while without food, but you can only last a day or two without water. Your body is 60% water. Now, I want you to understand, I'm making an analogy here between physical thirst and spiritual thirst. It's why I'm talking about physical thirst. Without enough water, every cell in your body slows down and becomes inefficient. The, the adult body can only tolerate 5% dehydration before it will lose consciousness. By the time you begin to feel thirsty, you are already significantly dehydrated. Okay? So, this is a compelling analogy. Science is telling us that before you know it, you're thirsty. Alright? Before you're thirsty, your body is already beginning to falter at the cell level. Oh, God is telling us in the Bible that before we know it, our souls are thirsty. In suppressing this God thirst, if you look at Romans 1.18, every human being knows that Jesus Christ is there. They know that Jesus Christ is the Creator. They know that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. But every human being on the planet is suppressing that truth. Romans 1.18. It's the truth of mankind. We all know He's there. We all know who He is. You say, Jim, that's not true. It is true. God says it's true. It's written on every man's heart. God says, I put it in you to know this. You know I'm here. You know I created you. Now, if you choose to disbelieve it, that's your business. And you can talk to Him about it when you stand before Him. I don't envy you that appointment. But the Bible says, in suppressing this God thirst, this God truth, we are committing soul suicide. And I, I just want you to see the analogy between physical thirst and spiritual thirst. You must have water. You must have God. God only God can quench spiritual thirst. Religion can't quench it. Doing good can't quench it. A great career can't quench it. A perfect marriage and beautiful kids can't quench it. Now, I'm an old person and I've never heard of a perfect marriage and I've never heard of always beautiful kids. Although some of you think I think that this is the panacea. This will make me perfectly happy if I can have this. Listen, your soul needs God. You remember what C.S. Lewis says, right? <laughs> you remember what he says. He says, man, we're far too easily pleased. We sell out for sin. We sell out for success. We sell out for pleasure. We sell out when what we really need is God. I love how he says it. You are far too easily pleased. If you're not a Christian tonight, you're far too easily pleased. You're settling for something in the world and your soul was designed for Christ alone. You know you're thirsty. You know you are. You know you're spiritually thirsty. You know you are. I'm not telling you anything that you don't 
No. Your soul is thirsty even if you are still willingly suppressing that God thirst. You are thirsty. David again, O God, You are my God. I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I know You're thirsty. God made You thirsty. You're supposed to thirst for God. And if you're not uh, preeminently thirsting for God, you are in sin. Beloved, this is the definition of sin. That you're trying to to feel that thirst in something in the world. This is an insult to God. This is an insult to the One who made you. Just as your body must have water or die, your soul must have Jesus Christ or you will remain dead in your trespasses and sins. The fundamental truth I repeat to you quite frequently from this pulpit is Colossians 1.16. We were created by Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. He knows you're thirsty. He made you thirsty. You're supposed to be thirsting after Him. And you're not supposed to be letting anything else quench the thirst of your soul but Him. Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ can, thir- can quench the thirst of man's soul. He said it. John 7.37 Some of you know this text. If any man is thirsty, what? Let him come to Me and what? Drink! Drink! Drink your fill forever! Be satisfied forever! Here's the analogy. When you're thirsty, man, you got to have water. You, you know, nothing will satisfy but the water. you got to have water. It's what God is saying to us tonight in the text. you got to have Christ! Or you'll be eternally thirsty. I think that's a big part of what hell is. Is never being able to quench that desire within our heart that only Jesus Christ can quench. So, this is a beautiful chapter. Tonight we see Jesus invite another thirsty soul to come to Him. The last two weeks we've seen this conversation He had with Nicodemus. As he confronted a moral and religious man, well, this woman he confronts tonight is anything but moral and religious. But both of these souls are thirsty, they are perishing, and they need God. Now, some of you know about the Samaritans. They are a half-breed, imported group of people left over from the northern kingdom, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. No Jew would travel through Samaria. There were alternate routes. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. But He does. It's extraordinary on its face that Jesus does this, but of course, Jesus is no ordinary Jew. He's not caught up in these petty prejudices of the first century. So He could have gone on many, well, several different routes from Judea to Galilee. He did not have to go through Samaria, but the text says, uh, verse 4 of chapter 4 of John, let me point that out to you. Chapter 4, verse 4, and Jesus had to pass through Samaria. If you look at a couple of translations here, 
One says, one of the old translations says, he must needs pass through Samaria. One says it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. Another one says he needed to go through Samaria. So what's this about? It's about this woman. That's what this is about. (laughs) It's like he came after Abraham, and he came after Moses, and he came after David, and he came down for Peter, and he came after Matthew, and he came after Paul, and he came after Jim. And if you're a Christian tonight, he's come after you. He's coming after this woman. This gives me goosebumps. This is a divine appointment. Jesus did not have to go through Samaria, but the text says He needed to. He has a divine appointment. He wants to save this woman. And He goes through Samaria. How about an English vocabulary lesson? Who knows what serendipitous means? Yes, ma'am. Okay, exactly. It's an unexpected, unforeseen, unanticipated chance happening. God doesn't work this way. <laughs> okay, this is no accident that He's meeting this woman at the well. You understand that, right? God is not serendipitous. God has come for her. I love how John Piper says it. God comes in the midst of real life for the least likely. And if you're a Christian tonight, He, he has come for you. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you didn't deserve it. I know I didn't. Verse 6, Jesus is sitting at Jacob's well. It's the sixth hour. It's noon. That's Jewish time. And I'm going to pick up here. You heard the text read. Let me pick up here. Verse 7. The woman shows up. Jesus says, give me a drink. You heard the text read earlier. The disciples are gone to buy some food. The Samaritan woman uh, said to him, verse 9, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. So, no matter how thirsty a Jewish man was, he would never talk to a Samaritan woman. And he would never ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. He would never drink from her vessel. And this woman knew this Jewish man thought she was a dog because that's what Jews in the first century thought about Samaritans. They thought they were dogs. So she knew who he thought she was. But she was mistaken. This request for water, in doing so, Jesus diffuses the situation. It's really kind of an icebreaker. She's in shock that this proper Jewish man would even talk to her. Right? She is in shock. It's a way to kind of break the ice. So in asking her for water, Jesus breaks down this huge barrier. Verse 10 says, my translation says, 
if you knew the gift of God. The NIV says, if you knew the free gift of God. The message paraphrase says, if you knew the generosity of God. Another paraphrase says, if you knew the gratuitous gift of God. And I want us to understand, Jesus has come with a gift. Right? He's come with a gift. You deserve to go to hell yesterday, just like I do. But He's come with an offer. He's come with an offer of eternal life. You don't deserve it. Here's the thing. Most of mankind, I think, most of modern mankind, I think, well, I'm pretty good. I deserve God to be good to me. You haven't read your Bible. No! 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 You deserve judgment. You deserve wrath, just like me. But Jesus has come to save Jesus has come to save, and that's what He's offering. This gratuitous gift, what does gratuitous mean? Unwarranted, unjustified, unreasonable, unnecessary, uncalled for. That's the offer of the Gospel. It's a breathtaking thing that many who call themselves Christians take for granted. I like how C.S. Lewis talks about it. He says, Christ doesn't just offer something for nothing. In one sense, He offers everything for nothing. It's the gift of God. Paul told the Ephesians that God gives lavishly. Ephesians 1.8 Paul told the Corinthians that the gift of God was an indescribable gift. 2 Corinthians 9.15 So what is this gift? What is this living water? It's eternal life. So how do we boil eternal life down to a point where we can at least in some small sense, appreciate it. What does it mean? It means to be in relationship with God. It means to know God. It means that the life of God has been imparted to us through the Spirit of God. It's relational. All true Christianity is relational. It's relational. Jesus defines eternal life in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, He says, that they may, what? Someone tell me. Know You as He prays to the Father. And Jesus Christ whom You have sent. So, John has told us already in John 1.4, we looked at three weeks ago, in Christ is life. He is life. He is the gateway. There's not five ways. There's not four ways. There's not three ways. There's not two ways. There's one way to God. His name is Jesus Christ. I know that's politically incorrect, but you know what? God transcends political correctness. God loves people enough to tell them the truth, and you're supposed to too. You're supposed to love people enough to tell them the truth. There's only one way. His name is Jesus Christ. And you have to tell the Muslim, he's not simply a prophet. He is the Son of God. You have to love the Muslim and tell him. Some people say, oh, well, Islam, they, they respect Jesus. No, they've blasphemed Jesus. They say he's not the Son, he is the Son. And if you love people, you will, when you hear them speak error, you will lovingly share the truth with them. This is what Christians do. I'm not saying we don't pick our spots. Yes. We need to be wise and discerning. But we need to speak truth. 
We need to speak truth. Nicodemus didn't get it. He said, how can I be born again when I'm old? This woman doesn't get it either. The woman says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. She doesn't really understand quite yet what he's talking about. Let me pick up here verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of the water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be long, pardon me, shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the born again soul. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, right? He's talking about being regenerated. And, and what's the other word that's used in Titus there? Um, I forget. Regenerated is enough. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, right? Renewed, I think. Our spirit is renewed by the power of God. So Jesus is not talking about H2, an H2O well. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the gift of God. What H2O does for your parched, dry, dehydrated, faltering body, Jesus Christ says, I will do for your parched, dry, dehydrated, dead soul. It's what Jesus says. Verses 15 and 16. The woman said to Him, Sir, Give me this water so I, I will not be thirsty nor will I have to come and draw. Verse 16, he says to her, go, call your husband and come here. So, obviously she doesn't understand what he's talking about yet. Or maybe she does. We know how human beings are, right? Uh, we just like to play stupid. Especially when it threatens us, right? When it threatens where we are, we just like to play dumb. Or we like to play arrogant. I'm too sophisticated for that. I don't need that religious crutch. I don't need Christ. I'm my own man. I'm the captain of my own soul. We hear all this stupidity out in the world. Where does this come from? Go call your husband. Where does this come from? What's this about? Well, we know what it's about. <laughs> She's got a huge problem in her life. And of course, the Son of God can see it. He looks right into the heart of, of people. So, go call your husband. It reminds me, you remember with the rich young ruler that came running up to Jesus? Do you remember the account? And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? I mean, this guy was a hot prospect. Right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And they had a, a brief theological and doctrinal discussion. This guy was pretty good doctrinally too. Plus he was rich. He was a real good candidate to, to, to get into the church, right? We need this guy. What did Jesus say to him? Anybody remember? Pardon me? Where does that come from? Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and follow me. Where does this come from? Jesus always exposes the sinner. He's exposed this woman. She has a man fetish, right? She needs a man more than she needs anything else, at least in her own thinking. Okay? And this rich young ruler, he loves his money more than he could ever love God. And God looks right into the heart of, of men. He exposes us for who we really are. Right? This is what God does. This is what Jesus Christ does. If you've ever come face to face with Jesus Christ, you understand you are exposed. 
You are exposed and you will either run or you will fall on your face and worship Him as God. You have two choices when you face Jesus Christ. In the flesh, you will run because you are exposed or you will fall and cry out for mercy because you're exposed. And so He exposes the rich young ruler and He exposes the sin of this woman. What we've learned in the first three chapters of John is Jesus Christ is God and He is not interested in a fan club. He doesn't need you to admire Him. He doesn't you know, need you to look up to Him in any kind of fleshly, temporal way. He's not interested in polite, proper, dutiful church membership. What does He say in the Revelation? You know, I've said this to you many times. He doesn't call anybody to be a church member. What does Jesus Christ call us to be? Disciples. It's good to be a church member. But if that's all you are, I fear for your soul. God calls us to be disciples. God calls us to be disciples. I mean, I was a, I was a church member from, from the age 8 to age 28. But I didn't know God. I didn't know Jesus. He didn't mean anything to me. So, God is interested in heart worshipers. We're going to see it in the verses 23 and 24 in a few minutes. He's interested in men and women who love Him. Not men and women who simply tip their hat to Him and think it's, He's a pretty cool guy. No, it's not like that. He's not interested in a fan club. He's calling men and women to be disciples. Men and women who will deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow Him in this world and make much of Jesus at work, at the university, at the aperitivo, while I'm surfing the internet. That's what he's interested in. He's not interested in lukewarm church members. He's not interested in that. You can't walk with Christ and have a lukewarm attitude toward Him. It's why he says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. He's not interested. He's simply not interested in that. He's not interested in lip worship. He wants all of your heart. It's why he told the rich young ruler, he looked into his heart and he says, you can't love me yet. You love your money too much. He looks into this woman's heart and he says, you can't love me like you ought because you think a man is more important than God. This is what's happening, beloved. This is what is happening. So he's, he's addressing their sin. He exposes their sin. And I wanted to quickly give you Piper's uh, John Piper, famous preacher in the state, his definition of, of sin, I love it. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for sugar-coated substitutes. Sin is trying to quench our unquenchable soul thirst uh, with anything but God. Pursuing our happiness is not... I want you to hear this. Pursuing our happiness is not sin biblically. Sin is the exact opposite. Pursuing happiness where... Uh, no lasting happiness can be found. And that's without Jesus Christ. 
God made us to exalt. You say, Jim, I, I'm not finding any happiness in the world. Well, I'm going to tell you that's between you and God and that's, that's on you. Okay? That's on you. You say, Jim, I'm, I'm, not finding, I'm not finding the happiness and the joy I should have. I think you're far too easily pleased. I think you're settling for something in the world. You've put your heart on something in the world. You're like the rich young ruler. You're like the woman at the well. You still think there's something that will satisfy you other than Jesus Christ. And I, I hope if I don't communicate anything else to you tonight, I communicate this. You will always be thirsty if you do not come fully to Christ. You will always be thirsty. You will die thirsty and you will be thirsty for an eternity separated from Him. You were made to drink living water. Verse 17 and 18. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, you have said well, you have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Jesus said, man, you've got to decide if you want a man or if you want God. It's just the same thing He told to the rich, young ruler. Jesus is out, he's out to create heart worshipers. And this is the call of the Gospel. Repent and believe. He told Nicodemus, you've got to repent from your religion. He told the rich young ruler, you've got to repent from the love of money. He's telling this woman, you've got to repent from your man obsession and your immorality. It's why some of you may never be more than a church member. You can't be a disciple of Jesus because you love something more. And I just challenge you to be honest with yourself tonight. Do you love anything more than you love your Creator? This is the challenge. This is one thing the Lord is saying to each of us tonight. Some of you can only be church members because you want something in the world more than you want Jesus. You still think your sin is going to quench your heart, soul, and mind thirst. You still think that something in the world can satisfy you. You've not yet understood who you are and who God is. We can't have that gratuitous gift, that unreasonable, uncalled for gift, if we refuse to repent of our sin. I encounter and have known many who call themselves Christians and with, without ever intending are actually repenting of their sin. It's rampant today in the modern church. Oh, I'll do a little sin over here. I'll box that off, you know. I compartmentalize that. That's over here. Oh, I'll worship Jesus on Sunday and I'll talk about Him a little bit if it's not too much pressure in the world. Listen, just stop playing that game. If that's, if that's the game you're playing, I, I lovingly say to you, stop playing that game. God's not interested in your games. He's interested in your repentance that you might have true joy in Christ. The joy you were built to have. The joy you were designed to have. The joy you were created to have. God is interested in a repentant, devoted, devoted, 
heart that will worship Him. You guys remember what uh, God said to the Jews in Jeremiah 2.13, For My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken Me, the fountain of living water. He's saying, hey, I'm the only one that can quench your soul. My people have forsaken Me. And they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what's a cistern? You know, that's an unusual word for maybe modern English speakers. It simply means wells or tanks or containers or reservoirs. It's, it's, it's something that holds water. And God is saying, your sin is, is broken cisterns. It'll hold no water. It'll never quench your soul. You must have Me. This is what the Bible is saying. Nicodemus was drinking from his religious cistern. The rich young ruler was drinking from his money cistern. And the Samaritan woman is drinking from her man fetish cistern. But they're all still thirsty. This is what Jesus knows. And Jesus, He loves people enough, man, to go right into the heart, right? He says, you've got to get rid of that. And you can have Me. You can have Me. And I'll fill your soul forever. I'll fill your soul forever and forever and forever and forever with ecstatic joy, infinite joy, limitless joy, boundless joy, forever! It's like... Some of, it's like some of you don't ever really believe that. You still think the world's going to make you happy. I'm an old man. I'm telling you from experience it will never make you happy. Ever. But God will jazz you up, man. <laughs> jazz, God will free you up. He... Uh, yeah, there's nobody like Him. So God has made us all thirsty. We must have Him. I just challenge you to settle no more. Jesus, Jesus Christ says, drink from Me and never be parched again. Psalm 36, 8 and 9, David writes, they drink their fill of the abundance of your house and you give them to drink of the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of Life. There's a beautiful image there in Revelation 22.1. You guys know it. John writes about, he said, I, sh I saw a river of the water of life clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And this woman says in verse 19, oh, I perceive you are a prophet. I mean, he just read her heart, right? He says, I perceive you are a prophet. And isn't that the truth? You think you can play a game with God. You think you can fool God. But you guys know the words of Psalm 139. God knows us. He understands our thoughts from afar. He is intimately, uh, intimately acquainted with all, all of our ways. He knows our words before they are on our tongues. Verse 20 to 22. She raises out of nowhere uh, the theological debate of the day. Where should we worship? We worship here. I know you, you guys say you should worship there. And, you know, <laughs> bottom line is here, Jesus, what does He say? He says you worship, verse 22, verse 21. And the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews Jesus again is, is essentially saying, look at Me. 
Stop looking at religion just like he told Nicodemus. Stop looking at it. It's not going to get you anywhere. Look at me. It doesn't matter much. It doesn't matter which mountain you go to anymore. Look at me. I'm sufficient. You don't have to worry about the mountain. You look at me. It's what Jesus Christ is ultimately saying here. Verse 23 and 24, he gives her these two fundamental truths about biblical Christianity. Verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we have two fundamental, crucial, vital truths here that the true Christian will uh, worship in spirit and truth. This is, these are the worshipers that God seeks. So I ask you, do you worship God in spirit and in truth? If there's, I'm not sure there's a more important question for you and I tonight. Who are the true worshipers of God? Jesus says they do two very conspicuous things. They worship Me in the Spirit. What does that mean? From the deepest place in the soul. My people aren't about externals. Yes, you can see the externals in their lives because they love Me. But it's not about externals. It's about internals. It's about what's going on in there. It's about that they've fallen in love with Me. Hopelessly in love. They love Me above all things. That's what it means to worship in the Spirit. I don't play religious games with God. I love God. I know God. I give myself away to God. This is what it means. I told you maybe last week, biblical Christianity is all about the affections. You know, my daughter asked me once, Dad, how do I know, how do I tell someone they can know they're a Christian? It will be in your affections. If it's real, it's in your affections. <laughs> you love Him. You love Him. It's what it means to worship in spirit because the Holy Spirit, because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, He has brought us out of death and into life and now we love this life-giving God. The second thing, we have a delight in the truth of God, both written in the Bible, 66 books of the Bible, and the incarnate Word of God, which is Jesus. We worship in spirit and in truth. As we've talked about the last few weeks, false religions proliferate upon the earth, even pseudo-Christianity. But born-again Christians worship according to the truth of the Bible. There are billions of people in the world worshiping God in vain because they do not worship the true God from their hearts and from His truth. You know, you don't just get to make stuff up. Most false denominations, so-called Christian denominations, they just make stuff up. They use the Bible sometimes, but a lot of times they just make it up. And you're supposed to know this. You're supposed to know the Bible well enough to understand when you're in a false church. Of course, we understand all the false religions in the world are making their own stuff up. But sadly, much of what is called Christianity today, 
people making stuff up. So it's vital that we understand this and we love people enough not to be constrained by political correctness. Some of you are bound up. Some of you young people are probably bound up in political correctness. Well, I have to be politically correct at all costs. Well, I'll just ask you, will you love your friends and your acquaintances enough to lay aside you know, this slight persecution of being known as politically incorrect? Can you love people enough to be politically incorrect? You know, to warn people about not only worshiping false gods, but worshiping the true God in the form of some false Christian system. We saw it, you know, with Nicodemus. He was, he was worshiping the right God through Judaism, the then right system, but he did not know God. We have to love people enough to say to them, it's not about external form, it's about relationship. It's one thing that the Lord is saying to us in John chapter 4. So God says, I'm not interested in admirers and fans and spectators. He says, I'm interested in disciples. It's what He always says in the Gospels. Follow Me. And I'll just ask you, could you call yourself a disciple? You go home. You talk to God about it. Are you a disciple? Do you follow Him? Jesus says, why do you call Me Lord and not do what I say? You know what's going to happen on the last day. You know what, ha what happens in Matthew 7. Many will say to Me, Lord, Lord. And what will Jesus say to them? I don't know you. I don't know you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. Beloved, you know, I know I say this a lot, but when we come in here, we do real stuff. We talk about real stuff. Some people don't like that, so they don't come back. I get that. But we talk about eternal things. We talk about things that matter forever. And it's way too important for me, you know, to tickle your ears. It's just way too important for me to tickle ears when I have you for 40 minutes to tell you as best I know how, what God clearly says. So are you a true worshiper? Are you worshiping in spirit and truth with all your heart? Are you a true worshiper of God? This is the challenge of everyone that comes to Christ. Nicodemus in his religion, the rich young ruler with his money, the Samaritan in, with her man fetish. Biblical Christianity is about repentance. I was talking to someone earlier. What does biblical repentance mean? You know, you ask many people who call themselves Christians, what does repentance mean? And they'll say, it means I'm sorry. No, it doesn't mean that. Ultimately, what does repentance mean? It means I've changed my mind, therefore I change my actions. That's what biblical repentance means. Of course, it can mean a sorrow um, for sin against God. It can mean, mean that, but that's not the core meaning. The core meaning is I change my mind about my sin. I change my mind about Jesus. I will honor Him in my life. That's what biblical repentance means. And that's what we're called to, beloved. That's what we are called to. So, it's no longer about you. If you've come to Christ, you understand it's no longer about you. It's it's about Him. And because you've made it about Him, you have discovered who you are and you are drinking living water. It's far better than death.
So it's what happened to Moses and Abraham and David and Peter and Matthew and Paul, millions of others who've encountered God. And some of you may have run into God tonight. It's good to be in church. That's where God saved me. It's good to come to church. You know, even if you're on the fence, it's good for you to come to church. Even if you don't care much about Christ, it's good for you to be here because God saves people under the preached Word. He did it to me. So some of you may have encountered God tonight. And here's my challenge. Repent and believe. And give yourself away. You will never be sorry. It'll be the wisest decision you have ever made. Jesus said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me. We are going to celebrate the Lord's table tonight.